0: All righty. Well, it's good to hear all the chatter. Just love it. And now we must stop. Just joking. It really is. It's great to hear um, hear all the voices, and uh, we'll we'll get that fixed in just a moment. I am sure. Um, what Paul was saying about singing in in it's just such a great reminder and why we need one another. One of the best seats in the entire house, I will tell you, while we sing, is in the front. Because what you do is you get to hear all the voices from behind. And it made on Friday, I was out trail running. I was up on Lookout Mountain, and I got to the top of this ridge. And I look out, and there's a, just a log, a logs tree sticking up, but no limbs or anything. And there's an eagle on the top of it, and it had both of its wings up like this. I'd never seen this before. Just wings, like spread out, just standing there, and it did that for about five minutes. Just massive, massive, and I and I just kept thinking, like, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Like even the eagle puts its arms up. And so in our church, it's okay if you want. Just I didn't I didn't really set it up for that. But if you want, you can. You can do like the like here, here touchdown, like whatever works for you, but it really is. It's just such a privilege to get to gather and, and to remind one another of the foundational truths that we need as we sing. I mean, that's what you're doing. You're actually confessing your theology to one another. Um, oh, it's just so good to be here. If I haven't you, my name's Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21, page 1023 in the Bibles in front of you. flip there, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a, what a gift it is that you would speak to us. Help us come to this text, not as just ink on a page, but what it really is, is your acting and your, your living word. Help us to, to know how hungry we are apart from hearing from word. Grant us a humility that we'd bend our knees. This is a immensely encouraging text. But even when the passage is this good, we need the work of the Spirit to be able to believe it, to receive it, and to respond to it. Above all things, God, as we gather together, the thing we want more than anything else is to leave this place more impressed with the work of Jesus. Oh, there's work for us to do. There's changes we want to make in our lives. There's, there's growth we want to see happen. There's shifts in our emotions. All sorts of things we want, but, but we need more than anything else is to be more impressed with Christ. So would you make Him loud in our songs, in our prayers, in our conversations, in this sermon as we go from this place, make Him immensely loud in this coming week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen came across a sermon from John Piper, pastor, theologian, author of a ton of books on the text we're looking at. And I like the beginning so much, I'm going to begin this one the way he does. And what he does is he points to verse 13. He says, it begins with, by this we know. And and then he goes, that's a common refrain in 1 John, it's, it, John, writing back to, to churches that he loved and people that he pastored, says this over and over and over again, by this we know, verse or chapter 2, verse 3, by this we may be sure that we know him, 2.5, by this we may be sure that we are in him. By this it may be seen who are the children of God, 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. There's a lot of, we know this, and by this, and 3.19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. 3.24, by this we know that he abides in us. 4.2, by this you know the spirit of God. 4.6, by this we know the spirit of truth. In 5.13, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And you now, quoting Piper, he says this, he says, so one thing is very clear from this letter. John wants Christians to be sure of something. He wants us to be confident of something. He wants to help us get rid of our doubts about something. What, what does he want us to be sure of? End quote. Namely this, that if you're his, you know you're his. That you know you're his. That you can be sure that you are his. That you can have this beautiful word called assurance. The entire letter of 1 John seems structured around That desire that we might know deeply, consistently, in ways that change us and comfort us and calm us, that we're his. Today, we're going to look at two aspects of God's love as it relates to our assurance. Specifically, we'll look at God's love to us and then God's love through us. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you please stand with me? 1 John 4, verses 13 through 21. This is God's flawless, comforting word. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Feel free to grab a seat. Throughout the letter, there's three main tests or evidences that are are cycled through to, to try to confirm whether someone is a follower of Christ or not, the three main tests are doctrinal, moral, and relational. Doctrinal, moral, relational. Doctrinal, what, what do I believe about Jesus specifically? Moral, how do I live in light of God's commands? And relational, how do I interact with, with others? Or, or am I loving those around me? One of the questions we might ask is how someone actually comes to confess that Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that how might somebody actually begin to love their neighbor, especially those that they disagree with and maybe don't like? How is it that some people hear of God's love and what Christ has done, and they respond positively, and they say, I need that, and other people hear the very same truth, and they say, I'm not interested? Well, we have the answer at least in part in verse 13, the Spirit. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his Spirit. And the, the whole context is the life in the Spirit, that the God has intervened in order that we might respond to who Jesus is, and follow his commands, and learn to love one another. There's two big words that we could throw into this, the words regeneration and renewal, that, that regeneration, that we're changed, that there's a transformation. That to become a Christian, it's not just adopting a new philosophy or a way of thinking. It's that there's a profound shift in who you are. The Bible uses language like you go from death To life. You 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 have a heart of stone replaced with the heart of flesh, that the things of God that you were uninterested in now become interesting. And then renewal that through the work of the Spirit we're being changed and transformed more and more into the image of Jesus. Never perfectly until he returns, but there's this shift that begins to happen. Titus, another letter in the Bible, captures this thought really well in just a couple of verses. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. I think we'll put this up on The screen. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, I love this phrase, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Behind your belief in your behavior is God by the Spirit working. So as we get into the end of this text that talks about that, that, that we love because God first loved us, and if we say we love God, we're going to love others, behind that is the work of God himself to change us. So we can, and he did it not because of works done by us in righteousness, but his own mercy and kindness. It's his grace upon grace upon grace, grace to love us and grace to change us. And it results in at least two signs from this text, that you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you begin to love those that are around you. Let me try to summarize this passage in this way. If we have the Spirit, we will confess Jesus is the Son of God, and we will show that confession in part by how we love others. Loving others is an evidence of the Spirit's work, which is also a confirmation of our salvation. So they just work together. That if we have the Spirit, we'll say Jesus is Lord. And if we say Jesus is Lord, we'll love others. And as we love others, we're doing it by the Spirit that confirms that we actually believe that Jesus is Lord. Now, I want to point something out before we get too far into this text. In verse 13, it says, by this, not because of this. This is really important because this goes down to the reality of the Christian faith, that we are saved by grace alone, not because of how well we love others. And a text that's going to punchline and end us with Go love other people. One of the great dangers that we can make is is to base our assurance with God on how well we love others instead of how well he's loved us. All of the tests in John are evidences of salvation, not works for salvation. They're evidences. They come out of being saved by God. They're not the things we do that would make us right with God. So this is really important as we get into the, to the, to the emphasis and point of these, passage, of these verses, specifically verses like 16. This is the hope that John had for his hearers. This is the hope that God has for you, that you would know this. If you are in Christ, that you would know this. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do we have come to know and to believe that God Almighty actually loves you. That it would settle upon us. That it would comfort us. That it would calm us. This is practical and powerful and personal and God wants you to know it. John Owen in his book, The Communion with the Trying God says this, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to him is to not believe that he loves you. It's a powerful quote. If you're his, he wants you to be able to live day in, day out with this sense of whatever's going on in my life, whether I'm, I'm doing well or I'm struggling, whether I'm angry, I'm calm, whether I'm kind, whether I'm distant, whether I'm engaged, whether I'm distracted, that you're loved. He wants you to know it. The Father wants you to know his love, and so what he did is he gave his son. That's verses 14 and 15. If you were here last week, it's where we camped out a ton And we have seen, verse 14, and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. To try to amp up the degree in which God loves people What I want to do is unpack, when we see this little phrase, Savior of the world, when John uses the word world, you could go to the Gospel of John, you could go to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. When John uses that word in places like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When John uses that, he's not talking about the world just in terms of expanse. He's not just talking about the world in terms of a number of people. He is talking about the world that is set against him the world that defies and runs from him. Think of that kind of love, that God shows his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we saw up in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, to be a wrath-bearing offering for our sins. And why we try to make a big deal of this is not to make us feel badly that God loved us when we didn't love him or when we were in rebellion. It's so that we understand that God's love is not contingent upon us loving him. that that, that his grace is not earned, that our salvation is not earned by us, but by him, but by what Christ has done. This is the foundation of the Christian faith, that we are saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, with faith in him alone. That is all what God has done in Christ to reconcile people that weren't even neutral. I love how Martin Luther says it. God does not love because of our works. He loves because of his love. supposed to get personalized that we might come to know and to believe the love that the Father has for you right now. Whatever you woke up and did, whatever you said yesterday, whatever you failed to do Thursday afternoon, God loves us because he loves. Whenever I feel off or sad or lonely or confused, one of the things that I can do is I'll go to, I'll go to my wife, Katie, and I'll say, Katie, would you just give me a hug? All I need is, I just need you to hug me. And as she comes and she puts her arms around me, whatever is going wrong in the world, everything is right for just a minute. God sent his son to, to, to display and to embrace you with a, with a cosmic love. To come, the, the incarnation, the story of, of the gospel, of God looking down at humanity, rebelling from him, sending his son to come and be the divine embrace that comforts us in the midst of our confusion and wandering. I used this line last week. J.A. Packer said, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth because it changes right now. What do other people think of me? What what is my standing? Where is my place on the team? How did I do in class? What what school am I going to get to? What's my career? How am I going to build my life? And in the midst of all of that frantic questioning, in the middle of all is is God loves because he is love. My brother, he almost drowned when I was three. I don't remember um, because I was one, but I've been told the story a number of times. My family, we, my dad had a sailboat, and uh, we were down in the marine in, in uh, Seattle. And they were walking on the dock, and I think my brother had fallen behind a couple of steps, and he went down through. They just heard a splash, and, and they looked down. There's just ripples in between one of the pylons where the the dock kind of went around it. And you know, as we all know, the water here is not exactly the clearest water, and so he just goes into the water. And, uh, and it's just this kind of black, shiny, gurgled mess. My dad, he just jumps in. And he is under the water for, the way they tell it, you know, every, every year it's like, it was minutes and then it was hours and, you know. But he's under the water, he can't see anything. Putting his arms everywhere, and then he just hits a shoelace. Grabs him by the foot, and he pulls him out of the water. He saved his life. We can testify to this. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we we're drowning in our sin, we're drowning. In our rebellion, we're drowning in the dark chaos of our choices and in the, in the poor, poor choices of others. Christ plunged himself into our condition. And he didn't come up with, with us in his hands. He actually went down to death. That was the sacrifice that Christ made. Is that the Bible says that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us that he substituted himself. He didn't just rescue us. He substituted himself that he might rescue us. It just makes me think of that line, here is love vast as the ocean. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says, get the thought into your head a minute. God loves me. Not merely bears with me, thinks of me, feeds me, but loves me. Oh, it's a very sweet thing to feel that we have the love of a dear wife or a kind husband. And there's much sweetness in the love of a fond child or a tender mother. But to think that God loves me is infinitely better. Who is it that loves you? God, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, the all in all? Does he love me? Even he? If all men and all angels and all living creatures that are before the throne loved me, it were nothing to this. The infinite loves me. But how do I know? How do I know that He loves me? He gave His Son. But I still sin. He loved you while you were a sinner but I don't always feel like he loves me, then look to the cross. But why? Why would he love me? Because God is love. Maybe some of you say this, but I'm not worthy of his love. That never stops God loves powerfully and personally. And as verses 17 and 18 show us, he loves permanently or perfectly. There's so much to this love. We're fully loved and we're fully forgiven, which when we know it and believe it and feel it can change everything. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected. It's brought to its appropriate end with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What this is saying is that you can live right now with an assurance and a confidence at the greatest, gravest, most serious, and sober moment of anyone's life is judgment. And what it's saying is that if you are in Christ, you can have confidence. And you don't have to shrink back in fear. And why is that? It it comes with this really neat little phrase here. Neat, stunning, glorious, awesome phrase in verse 17. We may have confidence for the day of judgment. We don't have to wonder how we're going to stand before him. Why? Because of this. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. It's saying, as Jesus is, those who have faith in Christ, so also are they right now, in this world, right now. That's the way the Father sees us. He sees us through the work of Christ. Tuesday, we were having a staff meeting, and uh, Paul, our new executive pastor, he asked this question. So we were beginning, he says, let's just share for a minute, like, what is God teaching you right now? What, what, what theme do you think he's teaching you? And Sierra, she said, dependence. And she goes, I think God's always teaching me dependence. I need to be more dependent on him. And then she quoted 1 Timothy 2.5, where it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I, I need to be fully dependent on Christ. And she went on, she said something like, And I keep trying to make it about my performance. If I can perform better, then he'll like me more. And then she said this beautiful thing, But he doesn't need my performance from me. He already loves me. It's because of verses like this. Because in Christ, you're already loved. In Christ, you're already righteous. In Christ, you're already forgiven. In Christ, you're already justified. You've already been declared just because Christ was condemned, which means with the future judgment, it's not going to be, did you do enough? It's do you trust in Christ? I was watching the uh, baptism video on Redeemer's Instagram this past week. It was one of the baptisms from like seven, eight years ago. And it was just a montage of different things people were saying. They're all wonderful. And Steve Kreiswick, one of the guys on the video, part of our church for a long time, said this. He goes, I realized that my righteousness meant nothing. It didn't help. My record, my giving, my church attendance meant nothing to God in the way of saving me. And it changed everything. That's what this passage is saying in verse 17. As he is, so we are. And that's why we can have confidence in Christ as Christ was. Through faith in Christ, the Father sees you as if you've done the things that Christ has done. I sent an email to Steve and just, just tell him how encouraging it was to hear those words. And he replied back and he said, thanks for taking the time to email. Glad something filmed seven years ago can come back and encourage And absolutely true still today, even this morning and yesterday, I was thinking about this, that all my failures and bad decisions are completely covered by the cross. It never gets old. It gives us freedom to simply make what we think is the godly way to go, and he'll take and use that. What Sierra and Steve are saying, the songs we've already sung and we will sing, we're saying, Jesus alone is my righteousness. And because Jesus alone is my righteousness and it's not my performance, it's not Jesus plus how well I do is what's gonna give me confidence at the day of judgment or allow me to stand before a holy God. It is just Jesus, which means I can do what this text says. I have confidence for the day of judgment. I can live right now knowing I am loved in Christ. I can be sure of this. In verse 18, it taps into fears. There are appropriate fears for sure. One of the most appropriate fears in the Bible is is the fear of God to to have reverence and, and awe before him. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse isn't talking about fearing God in a reverent way. It's about not fearing the punishment that we might face. We fear God, but in Christ, we never have to fear punishment. You never have to fear, fear condemnation. Oh, we'll be corrected and we'll be changed and we'll be chiseled on. But there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. John Owen, again, in his book, Communion with the Trying God says it like this. He says, keep the heart full of a sense of the love of God in Christ. This is the greatest preservative against the power of temptation in the world. Store the heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ in his love and the shedding of it. Get a relish of the privileges we have thereby our adoption, justification, acceptance with God. Fill the heart with thoughts of the beauty of his death. And you will, in an ordinary course of walking with God, have great peace and security as to the disturbance of temptations. John Owen uses the love of God as a way to battle temptation. Let me offer it to you this way. The love of God is a way to battle our fear and our anxieties and our wondering if we will be accepted. The most afraid that I've ever been in my life was when um, when Katie was giving birth to our firstborn, Emma. We were at a birthing center, and and things kind of went sideways, and after a number of hours of of labor, we got transferred to the hospital, and we're in the hospital, and they're still trying different things to help Emma come out. She got stuck, and uh, as this happened, and they're, you know, heart rate monitors on Emma and on Katie, and you see heart rate spike and then plummet, and you see oxygen levels go on. And being the the trained Google searcher that I am, I knew how to, you know, read. I didn't know anything. I'm just watching things beep and scan and tink, and I didn't know what's going on. But I knew something wasn't good. And more people began to flood into the room, and they're over in a corner, and there's a whole team of people over here that are prepping things. I don't know what's going on. Remember Katie, you know, I'm holding her hand, and I'm just telling her, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so good. And I'm starting to tear up a little bit. And she's like, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, it's just so beautiful. But inside, I am so scared. That in this moment, I'm going to lose my two girls. Everything worked out okay. Everything, Katie was, Katie was Okay. Katie was okay, Emma was okay, and I look back on that moment of just moments of sheer terror, of just absolutely being so afraid, what would it have been like to know the outcome while I was in the midst of the storm? Like if I knew, if in that moment, oh, it would have grieved me to see her hurting, it would have grieved me to see Emma struggling, those things still would have hurt my heart, but I wouldn't have been afraid. Passages like this remind us of what we have in Christ, that in Christ there is no condemnation. In Christ there is nothing to fear before God. There is no punishment coming for you because Christ has already taken the punishment. And while this world will throw so much chaos at you, and while your own sin and your struggles and our selfishness and our wandering and others will will, will challenge us, but in the moment, if I could say, but Christ has me. Right now, Christ has me. I know the outcome. Whatever else is happening, I know where I'll stand before God, because I stand in Christ. This text says we are perfectly loved. We are permanently loved. Here's how Ted Peters brings this together and actually transitioned to us to the to kind of the next few verses that. We, the love of God to us, and then from that through us. Ted Peter says it like this. He says, the promise of eternal life has the power to disarm anxiety for those who believe, for those who trust God to deliver on the promise. God's eternal being sustains our threatened being. God's faithfulness makes our faith possible. And our faith makes it possible to love others with abandon. That's so what's amazing is when the love of God gets a hold of us, it calms us, but it also changes us. The love of God is to us, but then as we see in these verses, the love of God goes through us. We love, verse 19, because he first loved us. This, this passage, these verses are not confusing, it's clear. We love because he first loved us. In 20, it's clarifying. You can't legitimately claim to love God if you don't love those around you. Not perfectly. Not perfectly for sure, but there's there's nothing in your interaction with others. And then 21, this clear command, this, this must, loving others is the result of being loved by God and a key expression of loving God. So it's clear, but let's be honest. It's hard. It's hard. Partly, partly what makes loving others so hard At this particular moment for us as a people is that loving others, particularly those you disagree with, is probably about the most countercultural thing you can do. Our culture is swimming in a world that does not love. If you're going to describe the current culture of our nation, what words would you use? Don't say them out loud. We're in church. Came across this podcast from a guy named Shai Lin talking about a, a book he just wrote called The New Reformation. And he was making these insights about our culture, and you're trying to speak into it about any issue, particularly very hot topic, but important, significant issues. And he, he says, you know, we, we have things like cancel culture, and our culture values snark, and hot takes, and platforms, and megaphones. And I probably don't need to illustrate it, but, but I will. Thursday, I was scrolling through my news feed, and I came across this Twitter interaction, which right there, I just should have like stopped, right? That's, that's just a lack of discernment you just turn off social media. But I came, came across this, these, uh, this tweet interaction between the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome and podcast host Matt Walsh. Um, and on his show, he made some comments that the only reason that Governor Nome was being taken seriously as a potential Republican presidential candidate in the upcoming elections, um, I think in 2024, is because she's, she's beautiful. So he makes that comment. Governor Nome's response in Twitter, which is definitely the place that you want to have public dialogue, okay? Instead of engaging in a debate about the proper role of government, Matt Walsh stopped a horrible misogyny. So she tweets that out and then he tweeted a response. And as I read it, here's what I thought. It's like good for you. You got called out, you got convicted, you're going to publicly you publicly insulted someone, you're going to publicly apologize but then I got to the end of the tweet. Um, He began it this way. I said that Christy Noem only gets hype because she's attractive. Lots of people, including Christy, were offended by these remarks. And I'm like, good, good for you. I've had a chance to reflect on this, and after much thought, okay, good job. And then he says this. I've had a chance to reflect on this, and after much thought, I want to say that I'm deeply sorry that you're all a bunch of ridiculous, whiny babies. you don't even know if you should laugh or cry in this moment. And that would be shocking, but it's not shocking because it's the world we live in. It's, it's the world of, of social media, at least, that seems to perk into the conversations and the postures of our heart. And then I'm a glutton for punishment, so I just read through the comment section, which was a trip down depravity lane. It's just a stunning thing, the way we are so quick to dislike and disrespect and be harsh to. It. And so I just want to recognize it, loving others is so counter cultural. We are swimming in a world that doesn't love one another. Almost everyone is angry. Almost everyone is unreasonable. Almost everyone is flippant. Like, that is the world we're in. But what a better opportunity to show the love of God through us. It's hard. It's hard for sure. It's hard where it's counterculture. It's just hard. Let's just be honest. Loving others is tough. And one of the rare occasions that Katie, my wife, uh, had done something that, that, that I didn't think was that great to me that she did it first. Usually it's me initiating, but she, she had done it first. Um, some, we got in a fight, and she'd walked out of the bedroom, and I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. And I felt like God's like, you need to go and pursue your wife. I'm like, I don't want to. Is, I don't know if you've ever done this. You ever had conversations with God about the things you know you should do and that you don't want to do? And so I'm saying, I don't want to. She was rude to me. If, if anything, she should come back to me and apologize and make it right because I'm not the one who, who chose to do something that was wrong. It's really her responsibility to pursue me and to fix the relationship. And I felt very smug until the Holy Spirit reminded me of this passage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And I sat on the edge of the bed. I've been loved. I've been so loved. Am I going to love? I love how Ray Van Ness says, he says, if the sinless God can love sinful people, then sinful people can surely love other sinful people. Or John, stop, the perfect love that drives out fear, it drives out hatred also. God first loved us when we were unlovable. And this sets the stage, and I love how this passage is connected because it sets the stage then for us loving others. Here's what happened between Katie and I. I got up off the edge of the bed and I walked to her and I said, I love you. Loving others is hard, but it's not impossible. And how do we do it? By believing that you're loved, by coming to know and believe the love that the Father has for you. That's how you grow in this. If you try to just do it through your, your will and your efforts, you'll get little, little, little steps down, down the road, but it won't be lasting, it won't be sustaining. The, the greatest love on earth is the love that God showed us in Christ. And when that gets a hold of you, What's going to spell it is loving others. Simply put, we love because he first loved us. I'll close with one story that really illustrates this. Came across an article from the Washington Post on July 12th, and here's the title A man's dog was stolen. He found the thief, and instead of calling police, he got her into rehab. It's a story of uh, Braden Morton. He was working from home and he heard a little skirmish in the backyard, and he poked his head out, and right then he saw someone running through his fence with his, his uh, Sharpei Darla, and then he, then he sees them run off, and then he goes to the front yard, and he sees them jump into a truck and speed away. And so he jumps, he's like, I got to find my dog, I love my dog, and he jumps onto Facebook and he just says, if anyone could help me, this is kind of what the truck looked like, if anyone could help me locate this person, and, and, he, and he put $4,000 for it as a reward, he had a friend that put another $2,000, so it was a $6,000 reward, and, and then just post, out, like reply after reply after reply started coming in, people are sharing it, trying to spread it around so we can try to find Darla this, this Sharpe. And he got a phone call from someone that said, hey, I think I saw the truck. It's down at this hardware store. And so he races down there. It's not the right person. But then the next day, he got a phone call. It was a young woman. She was just wailing. So Braden says, he says, she was crying. She couldn't even talk. And then he said to her, he says, listen, I've messed up a lot in my life. And I've been forgiven for a lot of things. I'm not mad at you. He says, hey, would you meet with me? So they pick a gas station and, and he goes to the gas station and there's a 20-year-old young lady with a leash in her hand and Darla at the end of it. And he gets out and he 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 walks over. She hands him the leash. And as the article says, then his attention goes from the dog and it goes to her, and he just looks her at the eye, and he just hugs her. Just holding this 20-year-old that had made a poor decision. Then he realized, he goes, I saw that she was a fentanyl addict, because he was. Been sober for about eight years, but I think he'd been in and out of rehab about 16 different times. And so what he did is he shared that story with this woman. He said, this has been my struggle. This has been my journey. This is what I went through, and I want to help you. And he pulls out the $6,000. He says, I'm not going to hand this to you because I want you to be safe, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay for treatment. He says, would you like my help? And she takes it, and she entered into treatment. It's a great story, and here's his motivation. This is what he says, his motivation for helping or was inspired by all those that helped him. That's this text. Like our motivation to love is because we've been loved. Our motivation to pursue is because we've been pursued. Our motivation to forgive is because we've been forgiven. Our motivation to to enter in is because God has entered in in Christ. We love because he first loved us. And the way he's loved us, he will love us forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I, I ask simply this, that you would cause us to know and to believe the love you have for us in Christ and that you would never let us get used to loving poorly. Make us great lovers because you have loved us greatly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna respond as we do every single week as a church by receiving communion together. This is a time to retell texts like this and to retell the story of, of the gospel of God coming to get us. By this that we might know and believe that the Father loves us. As Luther said, God does not love because of our works. He loves because of his love. There's no better place, no better place to see that than communion. So as you grab this... This little cup that has a, a way for representing the body of Christ given and juice representing the blood of Jesus spilled. So I, I, the only barrier to going to this table is belief. It's not your performance. It's just belief. It's just believing that you need the work of Christ. And if you believe that, go to this table and take these elements. And I want, and as you hold them, know what they represent and know what they point to. That's so why you say, I am loved like this.
1: Joined us here this Sunday morning. Uh, it's our vision as a church for everyone, everywhere to experience the gospel. And uh, one of the ways as a church, collectively, we uh, help everyone experience the gospel is kind of through having house rules that kind of help us, our culture as a church, um, you know, dictate basically what, what, what have our theology uh, be you know, important, but also have the culture of our church be important as well. And one of the ways we do that is by having house rules. And one of our house rules is remember what's right as you work on what's wrong. And one of the ways that we can help remember what's right is by worshiping together and singing truths um, about God and proclaiming these truths in our lives. Uh, So this next song is called Cornerstone. Uh, It's kind of a different rendition of On Christ's Solid Rock I Stand. Um, But I would encourage you as you sing, uh, don't just sing and read the lyrics but really proclaim uh, the truth in your life that through our weakness, Christ is made strong.
2: As I was sitting there and just thinking, just like I was when I was worshiping at the last service, um, we really talk about, uh, at least on staff and sometimes as our volunteers, how we want Sundays to be the best day of someone's week. Um, part of that is because we can gather together once a week and reconnect as a, as a family. And if you're new here, to meet new family. But part of also what Sundays do, is, especially as we're singing, is they recalibrate our minds and our hearts. That, that sometimes as we're just going through the week, if all that we're dealing with personally and then all we're confronted with on news and social media, it can just be easy to get distracted or to slip into despair with all the stuff that's going on. And so it's just amazing to sing a reminder that through every storm in our own personal lives and in our world, Christ is still Lord. He is still sovereign. He's still in control. And it's such a great news for us to hear. Well, you can grab a seat as we just kind of get settled for a few minutes. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. So great to meet you. Um, if you are new to Redeemer, if maybe it's your first week or you've been just checking us out for a short bit of time, I encourage you to do two things. Number one, just uh, check out this bulletin, this little piece of paper you may have gotten on the way in, and it'll just kind of give you some of the basic information about who we are and where things are here um, at our location. But then also, if you're ready just to find out some more information and to learn more about us, there's these orange connect cards or red, depending on how you see them color wise, uh, in front of you. And it'd be great if you just want to fill it out. It's their name, basic info. Uh, You can put these either in the black boxes that are the edges of the room on their way out. Or you can go to the Connect Center. And we would just love to get to know you and your name, but also answer any questions uh, that you might have. Uh, September is an amazing month coming up. Can we believe it's the end of August and it's the end of the summer? Uh, I don't know about you. I'm happy about that because something a really amazing starts this week in the Cunningham household, and that's called school. Um, <laughs> all the kids in the room. Maybe you're not be happy about that. I think some are though. My kids are actually pretty ready to go back. Uh, but for the parents out there, we are ready for structure and schedule and just some breathing room. And I think we can all say that. But uh, all joking. Aside, September is a fun time of a lot of things starting up, uh, not just in people's lives, but also in the church. We have a lot of stuff coming up. Like if you check out this middle section here, we have a lot of things coming up. But here's what I want to highlight for you this morning. Really, there's two. I guess you could say themes. I think of September for us as a church. Um, one is celebration. We want to celebrate what God has done and what God is doing. On September 12th, that's going to happen in a couple of amazing ways. One is going to be, we're going to be doing some baptisms. I think we'll have a slide for you on the screen. Some baptisms at the Benjins' home um, on September the 12th. It's going to be a great time for us to get together and celebrate what Jesus has done in people's lives as we celebrate baptisms. If you're interested and baptism and taking that next step again you can just sign that on this connect card and drop it off at the connect center or in those black boxes uh where i'm not going to tell you what it is but we're also on that morning in our service is going to be celebrating something else on the 12th not going to tell you what it is just live with the intrigue until then but plan to be here because it's going to be a day of celebration as well okay so celebration but then also connection and getting into community we have a lot of ways if you look at this for you to get connected into community here one of the best things, actually the best thing you can do if you're looking for some community is something called a GC. A GC is a group of eight to 12 people who share life together, they share community together, they get to know each other. And then that happens throughout homes, throughout the week in different places. The best way to get in a GC is something we're calling a GC Launch Experience. Uh, we've just found that, yeah, we could get you to sign up on a card and, and try to plug you into one, but we've actually found that a great way to get you connected to a GC into community is by getting you around people and and you figuring out, okay, do I have chemistry with these people or with these people? And also just seeing what a GC is like. So those are going to happen on September the 14th at September the 26th. We'll give you more info in the coming weeks, but for now, just wanted to give you a heads up so you can mark it on your calendars. If you're not in a GC or in any kind of community, again, I encourage you to get in one-to-one And that is your best way. Well, hey, before we get into God's word, let's keep our mask on, but maybe just turn around and meet some people and and, uh, just say hey to some people as we get going the rest of our morning.
0: All righty, we are going to get going. If I have not met you, uh, my name is Rob. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. It's great to see you. Um, we're going to be in First John chapter 4. Lord willing, we will get from verse 13 through verse 21. Um, and the Bible's in front of you, it's page 1023. So you navigate there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is an incredible gift that you would speak to us. Pray we wouldn't take it lightly, simply because we have such easy access to your word that it can become common to us, but it's, a, it's a, an uncommon thing to have the Lord Almighty speak. And so as we come to your word, might we come to it with that sense Let it be weighty to us. Let it be loud to us. This text is so immensely encouraging and comforting and and hope-inducing and calming. But even when your word is so good, God, we need the work of your spirit to to not simply understand what it's saying, but to actually believe it, to have it it hit us internally. And so would you do that? God, above all things, when we gather together, the thing we need more than anything else is to have Jesus and his work be loud so that we would leave this place more impressed and more confident in what he has done. Would you make him loud in our songs, in our prayers, our conversations, this sermon, and loud throughout this week as we go and we live? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John Piper, uh, pastor, has written tons of books. Um, I came across a sermon that he, he did on the text we're going to look at, and I like the beginning so much. I wanted to start this the way, the way he did, and what he does is he draws attention to the very first uh, couple words of verse 13 that say, by this, and in this text it's saying, by this we know, and then we know something, but by this, and, and what Piper does is he draws attention to how many times that happens in 1 John. Things like this, Um, 2.3, by this we may be sure that we know him, 2.5, by this we may be sure that we are in him, 3.10, by this it may be seen who are the children of God, 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life, 3.19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth, 3.24, by this we know that he abides in us. I'll give you a few more. Four, two, by this you know the spirit of God. Four six, by this we know the spirit of truth. 5.13, I write this t- to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And now let me quote Piper. He says this. He says, one thing is very clear from this letter. John wants Christians to be sure of something. He wants us to be confident about something. He wants to help us get rid of our doubts about something. And then he asks what? What is it that God wants us to be sure of? And I'll give you this as an answer. That if you're his, that you know that you're his. That if you are a Christian, that you know that you are the fathers. That you belong to him, that there's an... Uh, this beautiful word that there's an assurance in the way that you live and you think and you pray and you exist. The entire letter of First John seems structured around this driving purpose that we might know to truly, to deeply, to consistently in ways that change us, particularly when our world or the world is going sideways, that we'd know that we're His. Today we're going to look at two aspects of God's love and how it is tethered to our assurance. We're going to specifically look at God's love to us as one way that we can have assurance, and then God's love through us is another way in which we can be sure of this. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? 1 John 4, 13 through 21, this is God's flawless, calming word. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love love. Because he first loved us, if anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he cannot, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him: Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Feel free to grab a seat. Throughout First John, um, most. Bible scholars w- would identify three main tests or evidences to try to give this assurance that, that we are followers of Christ, that we know God, that, that, that we know Christ as Lord and as Savior. And the, the three tests or evidences are typically put in these categories. There's a doctrine, like what do I believe there's a moral, how do I behave, and there's a relational, how do, I, how do I love or engage with other people? So the doctrinal, and if you go through First John, it's typically around Jesus and who he is and what he's done. What do I think about Jesus? And then the moral, so we look at God's commands and how he instructs us to live. How do I engage with what he's commanded me to do? And then the relational, texts like this and other ones in 1 John, how do I love those around me, particularly those that I maybe don't like? So what do I believe, how do I live, and how do I love? In a text like this, one of the things we might ask is, do I confess Jesus as a son of God and do I love those around me? Those are the two tests or evidences pulled out in these verses. But we could ask this, how, how does anybody confess Jesus as Lord? Like how does that actually happen? How do you go from not believing it to believing it? Or how does anybody get transformed to have a Christ-like love towards Other people. How does that happen? How is it that some people hear of God's love and the goodness of of his giving of his son and they respond and say, Yes, I need that? And other people hear the same thing and they say, I'm not interested. I'll give you an answer. It's not all the answers, but one of the answers comes from verse 13. And how does it happen? How does it happen for anyone here or anyone anywhere else that ever confesses Christ as Lord? It's by the Spirit. That's what this text is saying. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because. He has given us His Spirit. It specifically tethers to two different words that we see worked out in a text like this. One of them we've covered a few times through 1 John, if you've been here, and one is probably a newer word, The, the, the words regeneration and renewal. Regeneration is capturing the idea that we didn't just adopt. If you're a follower of Christ, you didn't just adopt a new philosophy. You were actually transformed. The Bible uses language like, you've been born again. Or you've had a heart of stone and it's been replaced with with, with a heart of flesh. Or he's put his spirit in us to cause us to walk in his ways. Uh, Titus, uh, another book of the Bible, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, captures both of these senses in, in just a couple of verses. We'll put this on the screen. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What this is saying is that God in his generosity, by his power in the Spirit, changed us to even be able to believe in him. And then as we believe in him, he changes us to look more like Jesus, that's what a text like this is saying. We confess that Jesus is Lord, I believe that, and I begin to live as if he's Lord of my life and how he's loved me, now I begin to love other people. It's a simple way of summarizing this text. We could say something like this. If we have the Spirit, we will confess Jesus is the Son of God, and we will show that confession in part by how we love others. Loving others is an evidence of the Spirit's work which is also a confirmation of salvation. So it's doing both. If we have the Spirit, we're going to say this about Jesus. And if we say this about Jesus, we're going to love others. And as we love others, it's a confirmation that we have the Spirit. Now, what I want you to get as we dive into this more is a massive clarification. And this text, it says, by this, we know this. It doesn't say because we do these things, then God saves us. It says, really, if we've been saved, here's what we'll do. All of the tests in 1 John, we can't overstate this enough, all of the tests, all of the evidences in 1 John, they're they're not, they're they're evidences of salvation, not performance for salvation. As we look at a text like this, it's going to end with the big punchline of, you must love others. We can have this tendency to make the love that we have for others the very thing that makes us right with God, but that's not what this text is saying. What God wants us to get is what verse 16 says, and then to live our lives out of that. Let me read it to you. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So let's settle on your soul for a second. The Father's desire for you is to know deeply, to believe, to trust the love that God has for you. This is practical, it's powerful, it's personal. God really wants you to get this. John Owen in his book, Communion with the Triune, God says it like this. He says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. The thing He wants more than anything is to know and believe that you are loved. Loved in last night's choices, Loved in Thursday afternoon times of stepping over the things you know you should have done and were slow to do. Loved apart from your trophies and your status. Loved apart from your GPA and your careers. Loved apart from your track record as parents. You are loved by the Father. The Father wants you to know that so much that He revealed it. He, he manifested. He displayed His love in the giving of His Son. That's what verses 14 and 15 say. We spent a ton of time last week looking at this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is a Son of God, God's, God abides in Him, and He in God. One of the ways that you can see how much you're loved is, it, it, one of the ways that you can see it, the, the, the extent of love is to look at like what someone's willing to pay to, to show that love. When Katie and I, um, we've been dating for a number of years and, and wanted to get married and wanted to get the ring and wanted to propose. And at the time, I think I was making $4.75 an hour. So that was like, you know, big pay back then. And so I'm you know, making 475 an hour and so I'm like putting aside everything I can to save up for this ring. I think it took me a year to save up for this this ring and I remember the the joy to to be able to to get on my knee and say Katie I I love you would you Consider being my, my wife, and, and she received it with such joy and excitement. And, and it's not that the ring isn't that impressive, it's real, baby. I promise. I'm just uh, but, but it's not like that impressive. But it was the amount of effort it took to get it, it was just, a, just another way of saying, I love you. The father sent the son, his only son, out of love. When John uses the word in this text, he said, his Son to be the Savior of the world. When John uses that word world, in John, if you go read the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or Revelation, when he uses that world, he's not talking about the world in expanse. He's not just talking about a great number of people. When John uses the world, what he means by that is the world in active defiance to him. He's saying the world as it stands, not even just indifferent, but standoffish to him. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life God so loved people that didn't love him back. Why we see it in verses 9 and 10? In chapter 4, in this, the love of God was made manifest. It was revealed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, a wrath-bearing offering. While we were obstinate to God, running from God, not asking for God, he said, I love you so much, I'm going to give my son that he might die for you. This is such good news, and we don't, the Bible doesn't tee off on that while we were sinners, Christ died for us to make us feel terrible. It's so that we might ground our faith in something other than our works, but the works of Christ. I love the way Martin Luther says it. God does not love us because of our works. He loves because of his love. He wants us to know that and to believe that wants us to personalize. That's where verse 16 is going. To know and believe this is to let the the love of God settle down in our lives in such a way that regardless of what's going on around us or inside of us, regardless of how well we are performing or how poorly we are failing, that we would know and believe that we are loved. Whenever I feel um, off or sad or lonely or, or, or just like a failure. One of the things that I, I, I do fairly regularly is I'll, I'll come up to my wife Katie and I'll just be like, honey, could you just give me a hug? And in our kitchen as she just puts her arms around me, no matter what's going on in the world or, or in my own heart, everything is righted for just a minute. Just to be embraced makes, makes the, the love become Tangible. God in the gospel, he sent his son that we might experience the divine embrace as we were cast out, that he came to pursue and reclaim us. He came to welcome us in and whatever our condition was, he came to wrap his arms around us. He came to substitute and to give his life that we might know that we are actually loved. My brother, he almost drowned um, when I was three. I, I was one. I, I don't remember it at all, but we've told the story over and over again in my family. Um, we lived in Seattle at the time. My dad and my mom had a sailboat, and they were, um, yes, we were down in a marina in Seattle, and they're, they're walking out on the dock to go towards the boat, and my brother, at three, kind of toddling behind, wearing a big brown puffer jacket, and, uh, and as my dad's in front, the way they tell us, the, they, they heard a splash, and they look back. And he's gone. It just ripples between the pylons and, and, and the, the, the deck. And he had fallen down in between kind of where it connects. And just went into the water. And, and you know living in this area, when you go into water like this, it, it's, it's just dark. It's just glassy and dark and cold. And so my dad, he, he, he dives into the water. Dives in as fast as he can. And as the story's been told over the years, it, it goes from he was down there for a minute to he was down there for three days <laughs> holding his breath. It was miraculous. But he's down there and he is fishing around. He can't see anything and he's, he, he's trying to find my brother and then his finger brushes against a shoelace. It just grabs his foot and he yanks him to safety. He saved him. God sent his son to be savior of the world. God sent his son to be the divine rescuer who plunged into the ocean of our chaos and our sin and our despair and our hatred and our indifference and our antagonism. And he didn't just dive in and pull us out. He dove in and died. That's the story of the gospel that, that Christ came and he didn't just come to rescue us, but he rescued us at the cost of his very life. The Bible says that he went to the, to the cross for all of those who would trust in him that we might go from doom to daylight. I love what Charles Spurgeon talks about. He says, get the thought into your head a minute. God loves me. Not merely bears with me, thinks of me, feeds me, but loves me. Oh, it is a very sweet thing to feel that we have the love of a dear wife or a kind husband. And there's much sweetness in the love of a fond child or a tender mother. But to think that God loves me is infinitely better. Who is it that loves you? God, the maker of heaven and earth, the almighty, the all in all. Does he love me? Even he? If all men and all angels and all the living creatures that are before the throne loved me, it were nothing to this. The infinite loves me. Father loves you powerfully, personally. And what we see from verses 17 and following is permanently or perfectly. There's so much to this love. We're fully loved and fully forgiven, which when we know it and believe it, it really does change right, right now. Look at, look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that... The purpose of this, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. That little phrase tells us why we can have confidence. That we can have confidence facing the the gravest, most sobering moment any of us will ever face, the courtroom of God's justice. That we can go into that not wondering, what's going to happen? Have I I done enough? Have Have I accomplished enough? Have I loved well enough? Have I performed enough? Have I obeyed enough? We can go into that moment with a, a confidence, and none of it's rooted in what we do. What this text says, it's rooted in what Christ did. It's this little beautiful phrase, as He is, so also are we in this world. As Jesus is, so also are we right now. Try to illustrate this. On Tuesday, um, Paul, our new executive pastor, he asked the staff a question. He said, hey, before we get going on, on the, kind of the agenda, I just want to hear what is God teaching you right now? Everyone was sharing, and, and Sierra on staff, she shared, she goes, I, "And God's teaching me dependence. He always seems to be teaching me dependence. That I need to be more dependent on him. And then she quoted 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And she goes on and says, I keep trying to make it about my performance, that if I perform better than God, will love me more. She had this beautiful line. But he doesn't need my performance. He already loves me. I was watching a baptism video from our church from a number of years ago on, on our Instagram account, and it was just different people that had been baptized, and they're saying, why well, do I want to get baptized, and how's God stirring their hearts, and why they're getting baptized, and one of them came from Steve Chryswick, who's been a part of our church for a long time, and he, and he said this. He goes, I realized that my righteousness meant nothing. It didn't help. My record, my giving, my church attendance meant nothing to God in the way of saving me. You see how he adds that phrase, in the way of saving me. Those things matter, but they don't matter for saving us. And it changed everything. I sent Steve an email, and I just thought his response was, I just said, man, that was really encouraging to me, just to, to hear those words and be reminded of the truth of God's grace in Christ. He responds back, like he says, thanks for taking time to email. Glad something filmed seven years ago, came back and encouraged. And absolutely still true today. Even this morning and yesterday, I was thinking about this, that all my failures, and bad decisions are completely covered by the cross and never get sold it gives us freedom to simply make what we think is the most godly way to go and he'll take that and use it what Sarah and Steve were capturing is what this little phrase in verse 17 is saying. As he is, so we are right now in this world. It's talking about that we're righteous in Christ. It's saying is Christ-obeyed and Christ-performed and Christ-loved that through faith in Christ that we are seen that way by the Father right now. He sees us through the perfections of Jesus, which is what gives us confidence as we look forward to a day of judgment. Not where we're bringing, God, I hope I did enough. We're saying, I know Christ has done enough. What happens out of that is we don't fear. That's verse 18. Now, in the Bible, there are appropriate fears. There are appropriate fears in life. One of the the best fears that you can have is to to fear God, to reverence Him, and and have awe before Him and trembling before Him. But that's different than the type of fear that's happening here in verse 18 in light of what Christ has done. It's saying there doesn't have to be the fear of punishment. You don't ever have to be worried that you will be condemned if you are in Christ. You never have to be worried that you will be thrown out if Christ has brought you in, that you can look towards that future day right now knowing that that, that God's perfect love can cast out that anxiety. The most afraid I think I've ever been in my life um, was when Katie was was, uh, giving birth to our first child, Emma. We were in a birthing center, and things were going really well until things weren't going very well, and Emma got stuck, and we had to get transferred to the hospital. So we get transferred to the hospital, and we're, we're in the room, and, and our midwives are still with us. And, there's nurses and there's, there's other doctors that are coming in. The room is starting to get full of, of people and they hooked Katie up with all of these different monitoring, you know, checking blood pressure and heart rates and they're checking Emma's heart rate and, and as time is going and, and they're like, we got to get her out, we really, and it's getting frantic and, and I'm getting worried and I'm watching the monitors and as they're beeping and you see heart rates plummet and you see oxygen levels plummet and then you see them go back up and, and, and so it's just this like roller coaster of, emotion. I'm holding Katie's hand and I'm just like, so you're doing such a good job. And But I'm getting overwhelmed as I'm watching more doctors come in. There's this whole group of people over in the corner that are prepping something. I don't know what they're prepping, but none of it looks very promising. And and I'm looking at her and I'm just kind of tearing up. And she's like, are are you okay? And I'm like, oh, you're just doing so good. And and it's just so beautiful. But inside, I'm like, my wife is going to die and my daughter's going to die. And I was terrified. It's absolutely terrified. My wife is, is okay. My daughter's okay. They were both fine. By medical intervention and in God's grace, they, they, they were fine. They're, they're healthy. I think about a text like this and I go, what if I would have known the outcome while I was in that moment? It wouldn't have changed the circumstances. It wouldn't have changed that my wife was going through this. It wouldn't have changed that my daughter was going through this, but it would have changed everything about how I felt in the moment. If if I knew at the end of this thing, they're going to be okay, I would have been concerned. I would have been compassionate, but I wouldn't have been afraid. God wants to get the power of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ so deeply in our lives that in the midst of our chaoses, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of our setbacks, in the midst of our slowness to grow, that in the middle of all of it, say, I know it." judgment. God is gonna see the work of Christ and he's gonna say, welcome home. That his love will cast out that fear We are perfectly loved. If you're in Christ, you are perfectly loved. You are permanently loved. And you're powerfully loved. This love transforms us, and we're going to connect the rest of these verses. Let me give you a quote by Ted Peters that will lead us into our last verses. The promise of eternal life has the power to disarm anxiety for those who believe for those who trust God to deliver on the promise. God's eternal being sustains our threatened being. God's faithfulness makes our faith possible. And then here's the connection to the next verses. And our faith makes it possible to love others with abandon. Verse 19, it's very clear. We love because he first loved us. Verse 20 is clarifying. It's saying if you've really, truly been loved by God that you can't see, then you're going to love those around you that you do see. And there's all sorts of questions and things we can nuance. It doesn't mean perfectly, but you're going to see some, some transformation as you've been loved well. You're going to learn how to love well. And then verse 21 is a command. You must do this. Loving others is the result of being loved by God. It's clear, but it's not easy. Part of what makes this so hard in this present moment is that loving others, particularly those you disagree with, has got to be about the most countercultural thing to do. You know, if I was going to ask you, give me some words that describe what our culture is like, you know, what would you say? And don't say them out loud because we're in church, right? I mean, it's just, it's just like the, like what words would you describe this current cultural moment? Shai Lin, uh, out of a a book uh, that he just wrote called The New Reformation, he makes these insights about this current cultural moment. He says, we live in a culture, we live in a cancel culture. We live in a culture that values snark. We live in a culture that is about hot takes and platforms, not dialogue, not conversation. And we're so steeped in it, Loving is always hard, but our culture is just making it so much harder because hate has been so normalized. I was scrolling through uh, my news feed this last week, and I came across an article that was talking about some tweets between two different people. Um, I should have not read the article, but I did, my glutton. And um, it was between Governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, and podcast host, Matt Walsh, and on, on his show, Matt Walsh made some comments, I, I'm not aware of who he was, but he made some comments about Governor Noam about being a front-runner for the next presidential elections for the Republican Party. And what he said is, he goes, the only reason that she is a front-runner is because she's beautiful. She responded with a tweet. She said, "Instead of engaging in debate about the proper role of government, Matt Walsh stooped to horrible misogyny. He tweets back a response. This all happening publicly in 140 characters. He, treats, tweet, tweets, he tweets back a response, and as I read the response, I was like, man, good for you. Way to take some responsibility. Way to have some, some, some self-reflection. But then I finished the tweet, and I thought something different. He said this. He said, I said that Christy Nome only gets hype because she's attractive. Lots of people, including Christy, were offended by these remarks good so far. I've had a chance to reflect on this. Good. And after much thought, you know, I'm reading this. I'm like, yeah, man, okay, we all mess up. Just apologize. Let's move on. I've had a a chance to reflect on this. And after much thought, I just want to say that I'm deeply sorry that you're all a bunch of ridiculous whiny babies. Is it, there was that kind of like uncomfortable, probably how you feel this kind of uncomfortable, awkward. I want to laugh, and I want to cringe, and I want to cry. And I'm like, what is going on? And that would be shocking, but it's not shocking. We're just, let's be honest, we're so used to that. That's the, respo- that's the response. And, and then I decided to read the, the comments in response to the, to the tweet, which is always a path down depravity land. And it's just, it's, 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 it's stunning how quickly and easily we hate one another and bite and devour one another. And we're swimming in this. We are a culture that's almost angry all the time and, and, and is almost never reasonable. And we're swimming in it and we don't know what to do and so it makes what was already hard, harder. Listen how Ray Van Ness talks about this though. If the sinless God can love sinful people, then sinful people can surely love other sinful people. Or maybe even better, John Stott, the perfect love that drives out fear drives out hatred also. We can love because God has first loved us. Remember the whole stuff with the world, where it's the world in rebellion. God loved us while we didn't love him. God pursued us while we ran from him. God died for us while we sinned against him. Think of how that ethic would change our world. Let me give you one article. I'll wrap it up with one story of of illustrating this principle of we love because He first loved us. And if you're struggling to love, the invitation of this text is not actually to go and do better. It's to look at how God has loved more. If you're going to pull anything away from it, the thing that will transform us and change us is, 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 is not trying harder to love. It's seeing more how we have been loved. We love because we first been loved. This article is from the Washington Post, July 12th. Here was the title. A man's dog was stolen. He found the thief, and instead of calling police, he got her into rehab. story about Braden Morton who lives up in uh, Vancouver, B.C., and he was working from home and he heard a little scuffle in the backyard. And he looks out the slider and he sees his, his Chinese Sharpe Darla, his beloved pet, sees his dog getting picked up and someone runs, is running out the backyard through the gates. He goes to the front and he sees some people jump into a, a truck and speed off with his dog. He's heartbroken, he's sad. He jumps on Facebook and he says, Here's a description of the truck, this is what happened. If anyone can help me out, if you have any leads, if you see the truck, let me know. I really want to get Darla back. And he, he, he came up with $4,000 of, of, of reward money. And one of his friends put another $2,000, so he says, there's a $6,000 reward. If we can find who, who took my dog... The post was shared like 30,000 times, and I think he got like 497 messages from all over the world. So most of it probably pretty unhelpful, but then he gets this one message from someone who says, hey, I think I see the truck. They're outside this hardware store. Come down right away. So he, he speeds down to the hardware store and gets there. His heart sinks. He realizes it's not the truck, not the people that took the dog. Goes to bed. Next day, he wakes up, and, and, and a young woman calls she is wailing. She's sobbing. She can barely get a word out. That's how Morton talks about it. She says she was crying. She couldn't even talk. And in the middle of this conversation, he says to her, says, listen, I've messed up a lot in my life. And I've been forgiven for a lot of things I did. I'm not mad at you. He says, can we meet at a gas station? Let's pick a, let's pick a spot to meet. You bring my dog. I'll come get my dog. So he drives to this gas station, and there he sees this 20 year old young woman who's just in tears holding the leash of Darla. He car, he gets out, he walks over, and she hands the, the leash over. And the, the way the article wrote, the way uh, Morton talked about it, he says, As soon as I got my dog, then my attention turned on her. I wanted to focus on her. And he just looks at her. He leans in, person that stole his dog, and he just hugs her, says, it's going to be all right. The story goes on, and, and it talks about that Brandon, he, he could tell that she was a fentanyl addict because he had been, been sober for about six years or so, in and out of treatment centers 16 different times, and, and he said, the, what, what I wanted to do in that spot, in light of all the people that helped me, I wanted to help her. And so he, he had the $6,000 in his pocket, and he pulls it out, and he says, I'm not going to give you this money because I want you to stay safe, but here's what I'm going to do. If, if you're willing to, I'm going to pay for your treatment. I'm going to get you help. It's a beautiful story. He said his motivation was inspired by all those that had helped him. He loved because he'd first been loved. That's a picture of this text. We love because we've first been loved. And we love because we're forever loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by your grace and kindness in Christ, make us people that love well because we have been loved so well. Simply put, don't let us ever get used to loving poorly. Above all things, show us how we have been loved perfectly in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As the band comes forward, we're going to prepare to receive communion together. This is a time where anyone in this room, through faith in Christ, who says, I need to be loved by, by someone who can forgive me. I need to be loved by someone who is...